Welcome to episode 39. Yeah. This week we talk to horror actress Genoviva Rossi. Talk about what it's like putting yourself out there on social media. As an entertainer, sometimes people don't get it that you're just a brand. That's not you as a person. Entertainers have to do that now. They gotta be on social media all the time, promoting, promoting, promoting their brand. But that's not who they are as people. So we talk a bit about that. We talk about what it's like to be an actress, doing sex scenes, and of course, dating and relationships. One of our favorite topics here. So I hope you enjoy this episode. It's a really good conversation. I had a great time talking to them. Me, Gary Levitt, Matt Kaplan, and Genoviva Rossi. Thanks for uh, coming here. I've only seen you online in a bikini. So it's nice to see you with a shirt on. <laughs> yeah, and I actually wore pants and everything today. I'm pretty uh, clothed. Yeah. yeah. I guess a lot of my pictures online, um, I am in lingerie or, or bikinis. Well, I work out, I exercise, so I guess perhaps I like to flaunt that all the time I put into it, you know? I, if I had a body that good, I'd be shirtless. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, my body looks terrible. It's like, I don't even... So a girl told me I don't have a body. Oh. Yeah. She's like, you're like having... You have no body. Wow. Yeah, because I, I need to buff up a little bit, apparently. Oh, wow. And wow. then you told her you're going to have nobody and walked out? Uh, no, I just didn't know what to say back. No. I, I think I said uh, nothing. Yeah, it wasn't very tactful on her p- point. No. You know, that's not very nice. Well, you know, at least you're, you're not overweight or anything like that. You just see, appear to be lean. Yeah, uh, like a stick figure might have a body or no body. Well, better to be lean than I would think than, you know, overweight or whatever. At least it's healthy, you know. Right, as a person looks healthy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you look very healthy. Thanks, I try to be. I actually, um, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't do drugs, I try to get enough sleep, I try to avoid stress, but you can't always do that. Have you always been this way, or is this a... Uh, for the most part, you know, maybe in college I had some wild times, but other than that, I've been mostly pretty straight-laced, yeah. So you're not one of those people that just never touched alcohol or any drug? Well, I've drinking, I've gotten drunk a few times in my life, and I'm sure I've experimented with certain things when I was younger, but um, nothing habitually. Are you, what do you mean? You say that like you're not sure. <laughs> I, might have, <laughs> I might have done that. <laughs> but there's no evidence, uh, so I'm not going to uh, you know, acknowledge it. Well, I always find it weird when someone's like, oh, I've never drank, I don't touch drugs. Like, you've never even tried it? Like Gene Simmons, of all people, singer of Kiss. Like, oh, is that the case with him? I didn't realize that. He yeah. claims he's never had a drink of alcohol, and he's never touched any drug, not even marijuana. Wow, that's uh, pretty intense. Well, you know, I'm an actor, and I think a lot of times actors, we are pretty open to experiences, at least doing them once, to kind of put them in your catalog of things you've done in life. So you could bring that to your acting. Yeah, exactly right. You know, and maybe some things you don't want to really give a shot, but certain things maybe you're open to because you're going to file it away in your catalog of life experiences and it might come up later on. Right. Like if you were casted to play a crackhead, you might go and just go on a crack binge for a couple of weeks, right? 
<laughs> well, I think I would be less likely to do that and more likely to maybe hang out at a crack house. Right. You know, I was uh, with one of my friends uh, a while ago. We were checking out some heroin addicts in the park um, because we were, like, researching a potential role that we were auditioning for. But, you know, we didn't do heroin. We just, like, watched some heroin addicts at uh, Union Square Park for a few hours. Now, why wouldn't you do it just to experience what it feels like? Some things like crack and heroin maybe we don't want to experience because it's just too de- dangerous potentially w- w- and what addictive. If, what if you had a, a team, uh, you had a, a doctor, a medical doctor and a therapist with you to kind of, you know, like let's say you were, this is just, you know, go, going out there, but let's say a director that you wanted to work with was going to give you a nice paycheck to play a junkie. You're mm-hmm. like, I really need you to experience this. So I have this doctor and a therapist and we're just going to get you on and off drugs. It's going to be a, you know, a couple of weeks. And that'll give me the confidence that you're going to be able to be informed and play this part. I don't think so, because I don't really, that's like kind of like almost like that method acting ideology Mm -hmm. that I don't always agree with. I don't think I necessarily have to experience everything firsthand in order to emulate it. I think I could probably, as an actor, um, spend time with uh, heroin and crack addicts and um, probably be able to give a very good performance afterwards without having to experience it firsthand. I think a truly wise person um, learns from the mistakes of others, you know, mm-hmm. without having to make them all themselves, you know. Mm-hmm. And also, I think that it would be damaging um, to you physically and mentally and spiritually to really be doing things like heroin or crack, uh, you know, to uh, investigate a role. Mm-hmm. And I don't think I'd want to do anything that was that uh, negative towards my own health. So. so if Gary and I started doing heroin and crack right now, you'd see it more as, oh, here's a chance to learn instead of being, this is weird. Yeah, maybe I would observe. Okay. Perhaps. Right. Break it out, Gary. <laughs> <laughs> I would be a spectator. <laughs> what about love? Like, what about if you're playing a, a romantic role? Do you think it's important that you've experienced love with another person? Um, that's a good idea. Um, I would think, you know, well, you know, in general, I think love is an ex- an, a really important thing to have experienced in life. You would mm-hmm. be really missing out on something if you didn't. I think it's a really part of a, a human being's spiritual nature to deny love in your life. Is, I don't think you would have fully lived. Yeah, and is it something that you can actually observe, or is it something that you'd have to feel yourself? I think love, yeah, you would have to probably feel yourself, because it kind of goes beyond, like, uh, logic. Um, It's something that's really felt internally that you can't really, like, see love, or taste love, or touch love. Mm -hmm. You have to feel love, like, really within you. And then, what is love? Exactly. It's almost like faith or religion. It's like, does love exist? Does it not exist? It exists, I guess, within your mind, you know? Right. You create love within you, you know? Have you ever been in love? Absolutely, yes. You have? And have you ever been in love uh, more than once with a different person? You know, in my life, have I been in love with multiple people? Yeah. Yes, yes. I've been in love a few times, yes. Have, Have you ever had the experience where, like, you fell in love then you fell out of love then you're loving somebody else and then you're all of a sudden like oh this is more real love that thing i was experiencing before i'm not sure if that was quite love um that's true and i think that can definitely happen because when you're a younger person especially in your first time that you fall in love um maybe you're a little misdirected and maybe it's so easy to just fall in love with the idea of love Right, because we grow up with the idea of love, Disney fantasy tales and all this stuff. I think probably the opposite can happen as well, 
mm-hmm. that you didn't realize how love you in love you were until another relationship. We're like, oh, that one was better. Yeah, I think Prince says in the song, "Love isn't love until it's gone." Yeah, you know, and, and that is so true because we notice that when you know um, we lose the people that we love, like either a relationship ends or someone passes on, and you don't always realize how strong your feelings were with someone until they're no longer in your life, and you see that absence. Unfortunately, you know, that's a good lesson to learn because then you could it helps with gratitude and appreciating things that are still alive in your life. Absolutely, because you have to appreciate, you know, every every moment and everything that happens in your life because you don't know how many times those things are going to happen again. Mm-hmm. You know, so you have to be appreciative of each and every moment. Life have, is so precious. Have you experienced the different kinds of love, like with these relationships? Is your love different for each person? Well, that's true. I think love does vary a lot. Um, it is very different from person to person because sometimes you have like maybe like more of like a romantic kind of love. Maybe you have a kind of a love where the person's almost like a brother to you. Um, maybe sometimes it's a very erotic, uh, obsessed kind of love mm-hmm. where it's almost difficult to breathe or imagine your life without this person. And is that a love or is that just like some weird lust obsession? It's hard to say, I guess. Depends on how long it lasts. <laughs> that's the weird thing about love no one really knows what it is after all these years it's absolutely yeah what is love you know and what is love at first sight does that exist or is that just lust you know right. it's hard to say like i had one person in my life that i was you know years ago that i i can remember vividly the moment i first saw him you know and i can still remember it now and yeah. we had this very you know um intense affair and everything and um you know that soon followed after we met and was that lust was it love it lasted on and off for like five years, so right. there must have been something there, or was it just an obsession? So you know, it's hard to say. You know, and and you'll never really know. We can sit around and just analyze it. You know, mm-hmm. it's hard to. It's sometimes it's hard to put. You know, a, a, your finger on your emotions, and it's a really hard thing to observe. You know, because you see couples out, and rarely, rarely do you like. Oh, look at them! They're in love. Rarely do I feel like that. I feel like most of the time it's like, oh, they're bickering or they're trying to. They're looking at a menu to go in a restaurant. And then sometimes that's love, too. Um, but it's like the darker side of love that we don't acknowledge. Is that <laughs> like, you know, you see like your parents or you see some couple and they're like yelling at each other and they're not getting along. But like, you know, um, there's a thin light, line between love and hate. And sometimes the people that we love the most in our lives, um, our husbands or wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, family members, you know, they anger us the most because uh, we have the, the greatest emotional connection to them. And if they're absent from our life, even though we might be yelling at them every day, you know, we miss them incredibly, you know? Right. So and that's that connection. So those people might be very much in love, but they just bicker and maybe they enjoy the bickering. <laughs> Do you find the things that make you angry about, say, family members are the things that you, that you see in yourself, that you see in them? I think that you're, you're grasping a very important thing is that I think so often we get along best with the people that are opposite to us. Right. Um, because we love the things that they possess that we don't. And the people that are the most similar to us, we often get along with very badly because what we hate in ourselves, we'll often hate in them too. Especially when it comes to parents. Yes. Yeah. Yes. With parents, like, was it, was it like that with your parents where you'd see something about the things that angered you with them or things that you had within yourself? Um, to a certain degree, I, I could see that because you are like very much like your parents and you fall into these patterns of them, you know. Um, 
you know, and things like that. And then also, I just feel like um, I was never someone that liked to be held back or protected or told what to do or anything like that. I was always a very rebellious uh, person from mm -hmm. a young age, you know, yeah, more than my siblings, you know. Were you just like rebelling against what your family considered something normal, like a normal life? Yeah, I think I've always been rebelling against like a normal life, being a normal woman. Uh, living yeah, what, what were you rebelling against? Let's open it up. Okay, well, what do, what have I rebelled against in my life? You know, like, mm -hmm. I feel like I grew up with this idea that, you know, it, it wasn't as important for me to go to college. It wasn't as important for me to have a vocation. I should probably get married and have kids, and that's what women do. And that's still something that, like, comes up all the time, even in this modern age that mm -hmm. we live in, that these are the expectations that I have. And I'm always meeting people, and they're like, you should have a couple kids by now. You should be married. You should be doing this. You should have, like, this whole, like, life. Like, that's a typical woman's life. Um, and I think I've always kind of rebelled against that, and I've kind of just sought to kind of do my own thing. And I think even me going into acting um, has been an act of rebellion. I've kind of gone against everything that my upbringing and my family told me not to do. Society's not telling you, be a horror scream queen. No, no, everybody's <laughs> been telling me not to do that. And it was something that was implanted in my idea when I was, like, maybe 15, and I'm flipping through Fangora magazine, and... I'm watching all these horror movies, and I'm like, I want to be in horror movies someday. I'm obsessed with horror movies. I'm like, I want to be like the female Vincent Price. I want to do all these like terrific things, and I'm obs obsessed with the horror genre. What now? What was the first thing? What attracted to to you to it? Was it the sense that you were, knew you'd be rebelling against your family, or you just attracted to the horror? Well, in a sense, I guess it was a little bit of conformity because I grew up with my father being a fan of the Roger Corman films and Hammer mm -hmm. and also the Universal Studio Monsters. Mm -hmm. So uh, he introduced me to those kinds of films when I was very young and also uh, Bud Abbott and Lou Costello movies. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, they're meeting the Wolfman and Dracula and Frankenstein, all that fun stuff. So I watched all these, first Abbott and Costello, then Universal Studio Monsters, then Roger Corman and Hammer. And I really fixated on Vincent Price, I think, more than any other actor. I'm a huge fan of him. I just think he's amazing, you know. And he peaked in his 50s as an actor, which is really mm -hmm. remarkable, with mm -hmm. his Roger Corman work, you know, in the Ed Gallon Poe movies. And then I think that's always something I never forgot and became part of me. And then I started, as I got older in grammar school, like fourth grade, I'm, I read Frankenstein. Um, I've read that like probably four or six times. I've read Dracula around that time. I started reading a lot of Stephen King novels and Dean R. Coons. Was, was this concerning to your parents that you're attracted to these darker things? Yeah, and then and also the school psychologist. Because mm. um, yeah. then I was being art class and I would be a painting and drawing like, uh, you know, bats and skulls and vampires and fun things like this because they would be from like the books and the movies that I was interested in. So people thought I was a little morbid or disturbed or something like that. And Do then, you think you were? Um, not particularly, but, uh, but that was like, you know, those were just my interests. That's what, uh, captivated my imagination at the time. Right. Cause I could see it as two things. I could see it like, it's just, you like the style of that mm -hmm. or you're just fascinated with death and maybe you're interested in cutting yourself. Well, you know, that's true. You could take it uh, multiple ways, but I think I was just kind of fascinating with the aestheticism of it. You know, mm -hmm. um, I found some kind of beauty, I guess, in these films, you know, was your father less concerned because he kind of was a fan, at least of the classic version of that? He might not have been into the, let's say, slasher stuff that that you might not have been into, but he that was his world too. 
Yeah, he liked, you know, like I said, the Roger Corman, the mm-hmm. Hammer, and the Universal Studios. Then once you get into like the 70s, the 80s, mm-hmm. and beyond, with like Friday the 13th and Halloween things, he was less into it. My mother, conversely, loved the original Halloween movie, especially the last 15 minutes. Oh. And she was the person I, I watched The Exorcist with for the first time. Uh-huh. She had read a lot of uh, William Peter Blatty's uh, novels, and she was like a big fan of that. So I think she was a little bit more of a fan of, of, of slightly more modern horror films like maybe amityville horror and things like that right you know so i got interested in that as well so it was present in your house oh yeah i remember watching the exorcist with my mother as a little kid and growing up uh very catholic she was like see genevieve this is what happens to bad little girls i was gonna say our, you don't want to be a bad little girl <laughs> yeah i was gonna say because sometimes people are attracted to horror when they grow up in a very religious household it's like a way to rebel against that was that your case well, I don't know if it's really rebellion, because if you look at, like, Amityville Horror, and we look at the Omen films, and we look at The Exorcist, it makes Catholicism pre- seem pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> you know? If those were the only uh, exposure you ever had to Catholicism, you would have a very, you know, interesting view of the religion. Um, and there is, like, probably some lessons to be learned in, in a lot of horror, you know, even from a religious point of view. Even when we look at um, old uh, Vincent Price and Barbara Steele movies, a lot of times in these films, their very souls were in peril, mm-hmm. you know? And it almost does have, like, a little bit of a religious significance. And the evil people are punished, and the good people are often victorious. Right. You know? Right. Which was still often a case in the 70s, 80s slasher movies. All of the uh, Friday the 13th movies, it was the teens engaging in promiscuity. They're having sex. That's when they were getting killed to say that, like, that's wrong. That it's like a morality play. There yeah, is yeah, kind of like absolutely. a subtext in horror that is a, l- a little bit spiritual or religious, mm-hmm. I think, that is there that not everybody recognizes. Yeah. 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 And there's also the subtext of the uh, defenseless, helpless woman that will, you know, that usually survives i guess but is being you know can't fend for herself she's running she doesn't know what to do she drops her phone whatever do you feel uh any uh relation to that well that's interesting because that's something rebellion against that well it's something that's part of the horror genre there is like a degree of sexism that still permeates in that genre is in every in every other genre and every aspect of our culture even today you know worldwide um, we never really get away from that, that women are uh, maybe viewed by our biology, you know, in some ways. But, um, and then I'm a little conflicted at times being called a scream queen because people always think that, like, my um, vocation is pretty much like I run, I scream, you're, you're I fall. Yeah. I'm a victim. But if you look at my uh, resume, um, you know, I've been a victim. Like, one of my most well-known films is I Spill Your Guts, and I'm a victim in that, certainly. And I don't have a problem playing the victim, because we are all victims at times in life. Mm-hmm. You know? That's yeah. a role we all play. Mm-hmm. Um, but at other times, I've played a soldier, like in Zombie Hunters, and The Solace. And um, at other times, like in Hunters, I play a murderer. And then um, at other times, I play a, a, a Satanist, like in Flesh for the Beast. Do, and do you have a, a negative reaction if you're given a script where you're just the helpless maiden? Um, you know, I've played such a wide variety of roles that I don't think I would really be offended by that. Because I don't think I'm limited or pigeonholed into that. Right. I think if every role I had played in all the films that I've done it was always like that, I think I would feel very uh, limited. Yeah, but I don't resent it if I do get a role like that, right. because that's it embodies part of uh, the human experience. You have no anger towards that. 
No, no. And I don't think there's anything wrong with females that choose to take roles or maybe they're, that some people might perceive as being a little exploitive. As long as you go in there with a good head on your shoulders that like this is something that you want to do and you want to embrace, mm-hmm. I think that's your personal decision as a, a woman. I wonder if you don't feel any anger towards that because I don't see that in you at all. You're very empowered. You know, maybe if there was that aspect of you to bring up what we were talking about before, you'd be like, oh, I'm that role pisses me off. But you don't seem like a defenseless maiden whatsoever. No, and I don't get roles like that too often because I think that kind of just doesn't fit me fully because I look at my life and how I uh, go through things and I would say I tend to be a rather aggressive, like assertive type of person. Yeah. And I kind of don't um, stick to whatever normal gender roles that may exist right. in our so culture. The, the, scream, the Scream Queen title is, I guess, both a curse and, and a blessing that'll get you the attention, but it's people might have a limited view of who you are based on that if they don't really dig into your uh, your history of what you've done. Yeah, it's kind of like an overused term, and I think a lot of people don't really know what it means. I would say at this point, Scream Queen pretty much means that I am a female who's known for acting in the horror genre. How about just Horror Queen? Let's change the name. That's what I always call okay. myself. If you look at my uh, online, I usually call myself a Horror Queen. Perfect. Yeah, because I like that better because I think it kind of just denotes that it, I'm the queen of horror movies, you mm-hmm. know, and I've been in like over, well over 76 films since 2012. I have 76 on my IMDb, but probably if everybody actually finished the films I was right. in and put them on IMDb, it'd probably be like 90 or something like that, mm-hmm. you know. But have you been the killer? I've killed people, yes. And I've also been a mother with a little boy in the dark place inside. And um, Apocalypse Kiss, I was pregnant and gave birth. I was in that movie with uh, Michael Berryman, Tom Atkins, and uh, DC Douglas. So Nice. No, now, to get, to get into these roles, do you find that you have to actually murder someone to be able to? <laughs> oh, I don't want to give away my secrets. <laughs> <laughs> do you have to give birth to a baby and then drown it in a bathtub to like really get that feeling of playing that role? Well, that's a good question. I remember when I was talking to Christian Grillo uh, about the role, he was like, yeah, I want you to be pregnant and you're going to give birth and you're going to be like this hippie working in a cafe. And I was like, oh, I'm like, this will be great because it'll be like the closest I'll probably ever come to giving birth. So I'm excited. <laughs> um, you know, and he could easily cast someone that has a couple kids at home or whatever. But instead, I watched The Miracle of Life and I also watched uh, film versions of actors giving birth in movies to get a sense of what it really looks okay. like and also at how it's portrayed in, in film. Right. And then when I did it in the end, I remember I showed up on set after we had filmed it. I met DC Douglas for the first time. He's like, Genoviva. He's like, you look so familiar. Have we met before? And I was like, no. And he's like, oh, the dailies. I saw you give birth. He was like, it was amazing. And he's told me that like three times that he's like, no one gives birth like you, Genevieve. <laughs> and even the director and his wife were like, she did a great job. And, you know, and I don't have any children. I've never given birth. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know if I ever probably will, probably not. And, um, or I even have an interest in it. But, you know, that's the whole thing. You're an actor and you're researching a role. And sometimes the best roles are the ones you never thought you could play that challenge you to step outside of yourself. Yeah. What was the last role that did that for you? That's a good question. What's the last role that caused me to really step out of myself? Well, there was a fun role I did recently that I'll mention, and that was called uh, Dead Men Tell No Tales. And I was really excited to do that because it was a little, a couple weeks after poor Gunnar Hansen passed away, um, who, you know, was the killer in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Leatherface. Mm-hmm. And I would be playing a role in my brawn panties and, or, you know, kind of like a bikini with a chainsaw. 
And um, that was a challenge for me to step outside of myself because I don't own a chainsaw. I had never used a chainsaw before. And I don't, I definitely wouldn't, it wouldn't be proper for me to use one and my underwear either without protective gear. You are a murderer in that. Yes. You are murdering people with a chainsaw. Exactly right. And a very um, messy way to murder someone, mm -hmm. right? But very passionate. Yeah. It's a very passionate, uh, wonderful way to murder people, I guess. (laughs) And that's why Texas Chainsaw Mm -hmm. Massacre is so popular and Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers. And we did my scenes, we shot it out in uh, West Virginia, and the images of me with my chainsaw covered in blood and looking insane and my animal print prawn panty set were so powerful that they became the cover of the DVD, the poster, the tickets, pins, and all these other things. Yeah. And it's really representative of like the film. It's like the, the, the primo picture that they've been using to market it. Is it kind of feminist to have a uh, murdering woman? I think so. It, it kind of was intended to be a little bit of a role reversal, like, you know, not to give it away, but like, you know, you, you see my female character and I'm sexy, but um, I'm not quite what I seem to be at mm-hmm. all, you know? And um, sometimes life is like that. People, you know, we judge books by their cover and we don't see, and we think maybe women are not as dangerous as they potentially could be. Right. You know, we can have chainsaws, Mm -hmm. and we can kill people, too. And you were using a real chainsaw? It was a real chainsaw, so that was kind of exciting for me, um, you know, because when I got there, they were like, yeah, we're going to use a chainsaw. And we're in West Virginia, and all my friends out there, like, use chainsaws, I guess, all the time. But I'm just a girl from New York, New Jersey area, and I had never used a chainsaw before. And they're like, it's kind of like shooting a gun. I'm like, yeah, well, I'm like, I don't (laughs) shoot a gun that often, you know, not usually, just when I'm hanging out with my gang member friends. Nah, not. But, you know, it doesn't really come up too much in my life compared to them who go out hunting or whatever. So they had to, like, you know, going through, like, an orientation because I want to make sure I'm holding this properly. And I look like someone that's held a chainsaw before and we're doing, like, the whole thing. And I was a little nervous about it. I kind of, like, there was this little voice in my head is like, this is a good idea. I'm like, ah, you know, it's an experience. And actors like to have new experiences, you know. Yeah, it sounds like a a good role to push you. Now, what's your opinion on this? Because a lot of people hold this against the horror genre. Mm-hmm. That it merges uh, sex and violence. So you're in a brawn panties, you're mm-hmm. sexy, but you have a chainsaw and blood all over you. Well, we could say that it merges uh, sex and violence, but it also merges uh, sex and death, which has always been merged. You know, since like like the beginning of like literature and time, if we read Dracula and things along those lines, mm-hmm. you know, uh, they even called sex and orgasm the little death. Yes. You know, and a man's life force is probably drained a little bit after sex as well. Absolutely. You know, it's like almost like you die a little bit every night. You're with uh, your lover Mm -hmm. as a man. Or alone. Yeah, or alone even. (laughs) Or in the morning. Your lover, which is your hand (laughs) at that time. Yeah, you know. So um, I think there's always been this connection between sex and, and death. And then I guess the violence is something that's part of the death, at least the death, certainly. But I think the connection is more the sex and the death. Is there an eroticism to that? Like, uh, I could see a lot of men being turned on by this powerful woman in this sexy outfit with a chainsaw. Well, it's true. People do get turned on because I think it almost kind of has this fetishism, or this eroticism to a lot of the fans. It's a little domish. Yeah, and I would say in the whole like uh, horror paradigm, I tend, to, I think uh, as a woman, I tend to be a little bit more of an apex predator than I tend to be, uh, you know, on the bottom. 
Uh-huh. And well, apex predator meaning like you're the dominating one. Yeah, I think I, you know, I think I kind of radiate that, and then I play very well in those kinds of roles with like a chainsaw or in hunters. I have a knife and I'm running around stabbing people and things like that. Yeah, or I'm playing a satanist in certain things, or I'm an evil witch and other things. Usually, guys, even if it's not intended, find me in those kinds of roles to be very erotic because I'm like the ultimate maybe dominatrix. Right. You know, this uh, person that's going, this woman that's going to like maybe like uh, put a spell on them and make them do the thing that they want to do but they're afraid to do that's going to manipulate them yeah you know that's going to hurt them you know how does that make you feel do you have an opinion on that correlation between say horror and bdsm i think there is that correlation and then um you know i don't know how i feel about it i guess that's part of life and as long as you understand that it's role playing and it's not reality Mm -hmm. that's the important thing so you don't want it to be like unhealthy where you like you really want to watch a horror movie that's like a kind of a rape porn kind of movie and you would want to go out there and, and f- really do it right now if you want to maybe you know role play with your lover you know where one of you is in a dominant position one of you in a submissive position yeah. that's a form of acting and i guess people find that fun you know and people are allowed to do that sort of thing and then some guys obviously find it very attractive to have the woman in a more submissive position with a male over that person you know and she's running and she's being victimized and she's screaming and she's you know having whatever thing is done to her and as long as i guess you can understand that that's not real and shouldn't be carried over into the real world right and i, I don't think it has been like I, I can't really think of times when people have done something terrible and blamed a movie generally horror f- fan film fans are quite nerdy and well I'm mostly pacifists totally disagree because oh, I'm, yeah? I'm sure genevieve can vouch for this that her work as a horror actress she has elicited a lot of sexual responses. Yeah, not usually like uh, anything violent that I've noticed, but you do get a, a bit of, when you're a scream queen or a horror queen or a horror actress, it is a rather erotic genre compared to like drama or comedy. You're the ultimate dominatrix. You're, yeah. you're the dominatrix that has taken it a step further. Yeah, because I do get like a lot of guys, you know, like I would love to lick your shoes, mm-hmm. which I guess is harmless, you know. Right, so that's what they're seeing. They're not seeing a horror movie. They're seeing the ultimate dominatrix. And it's, they're getting erotic, erotic from it. Exactly. And, and things that weren't even images of me and things that weren't even meant to be erotic or whatever, you know, me holding a chainsaw or whatever, people find sex in that and they find eroticism in that mm-hmm. and they get turned on by that. Um, and, you know, I guess that's how people are. And then, you know, I get like a lot of uh, men, um, you know, sending me pictures of their penises or whatever or trying to come on to me, at, you know, at certain points. And I think that's common of all um, horror queens, scream queens, actresses in the horror genre. Mm-hmm. I guess it's to be expected. You know, perhaps the men get some attention like that, too. I'm not really sure. You know? well, that, that gives me two questions. One, is it insulting to you for the, gen- uh, uh, for the genre to equate it to sex like that? Mm. And then I want to talk to you about these unsolicited dick pics you're getting. Oh, sure. Well, you know, me personally, I'm an actress and I see this as my art, my craft. So I don't, I'm not comfortable with my image or myself being overly sexualized because then you're only really seeing one facet of me. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of facets and I don't want to focus on just that one facet. Well, as a lover of the genre, does it offend you that people are getting just a, 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 it's almost like a different kind of porn for some people? Um, no, not necessarily. I guess people get turned on by what people get turned on and you put your work out into the world and you just don't know how people are going to view it, perceive it and, you know, ingest it into their lives and you don't really have control over that, but at least you're touching people, you're affecting people Mm -hmm. and they're fans of your work and, you know. What emotion are you, I don't know, trying is the right word, but what emotion are you hoping to elicit from viewers? 
say in the role you were just talking about with the chainsaw? What emotion? Well, I guess power is like the first word that comes to mind. You know, it's seeing a woman in a powerful position. Right. Knowing that a woman is probably capable of delving into the dark, dark places that we think only maybe men are capable of. That a woman could be a sociopath. Have you had female fans approach you at conventions or somewhere and say, like, they felt empowered by uh, a role of yours? Well, that's a good question. I would say, compared to a lot of the other uh, horror actresses out there, I would say, like, a good maybe, like, 30% or something like that of my fans are probably female. Oh, that's, in horror, that's a that's a high percentage yeah it's not terrible yeah. like i go out to conventions like i was at just at a Mazicon, which was like a sci-fi convention this one woman came out heather and she brought her husband they both bought pictures and stuff and it was her idea more than her husband she just brought him along mm -hmm. but she follows me and i do try to be very um you know your life is the message you send to the world and i like my message to be kind of an inspiring one that you're not limited by um, your background or your life and that you can rise up and you can achieve things if you put your mind to it, mm -hmm. you know, and I like that to be like kind of an empowering message for everybody. Um, so I do have a certain percentage of female fans. And then once in a while, I might even have a female fan that sends me some erotic pictures herself. Oh, yeah. <laughs> once her. in a while. Yeah, I've had a couple, not a lot, but every now and then I'll get like something like that as well. Yeah. Do you have an opinion on that? Like, why am I being sexualized? Like, do you think Ben Affleck is being sexualized when he plays Batman? You think I'm women? Sure he is. Yeah, he must be. <laughs> yeah. he. Oh, some of my actor friends, uh, the, men, the men do claim that they get uh, solicited by women once in a while and a lot of um, gay men and things like that. Okay. So I guess maybe the nature of being an actor or actress is that you're just this kind of person that's like a magnet of attention an obsession and people just like really you know are captivated by you and that's what you have to be to be an actor or an actress you Cap know captivating yeah and yeah. fascinating and people you know because when i have my favorite actor actress it's like i have to see every move they're in because i have to right and you want to be that kind of actress or actress that people just want to follow your work and see you in all these different kinds of roles you know and how soon do you send them an erotic picture <laughs> i don't i don't send erotic pictures um i do sell pictures at conventions and things um you know autographed and stuff mm -hmm. and i send them out to fans um but and then i guess there may be erotic to some degree but not an, i don't like to have anything that's like too provocative mm -hmm. i think also like if someone has seen you in many films maybe all 76 of them they think they know you and i think that's another part of it too even if they've seen you in 10 roles like, I, I know this woman, I've seen her so much, and it gives uh, a fan a false sense of being familiar with you. And you're just seeing them for the first time, whether so, it's their face or their penis. Do you, do you sense that about them? Like, oh, they're, they're overly familiar, and does it make you uncomfortable? Well, th that's part of it. And then also with the social media, because they can be your friends on Facebook, mm -hmm. they can follow me on Instagram, they can follow me on uh, Twitter. They have this familiarity with my day-to-day -day life and my interests and what I'm up to all the time. Right. So they do feel like they know me and they do feel like connected to like we're buddies and stuff, which is cool. You know, that's, that's nice as long as people understand that there are certain parameters, you know. And there's certain differences between what you're choosing to put out into the public and your, who you are just as a person. True. Very much so. I mean, what, what they're seeing is uh, curated. They're not seeing the whole you. So they're developing this perception of you based on what you've decided to put out. Exactly, and that's called image. Right. Yeah, and you want to be conscious of that, as I guess, as an actor, because that's what you're selling, yourself and your image. Right. And, um, and then certain things we always still want to keep private, no matter how public of a person that we are. Right, so that's, your pub that's public Genevieve. Mm-hmm.
now when they come up to you like they know you and they're all familiar like Matt was talking about, they're acting like they're familiar with the person Genevieve. And I feel like some fans might have a tough time finding that, knowing that line intuitively. That's true. That's true. And they do see you acting. And, and someone, a mark of a good actor is uh, you see them in the movie and you almost feel like that must be what they're like in real life. Right. Because they just seem so genuine and so real and in the moment mm-hmm. that you figure like, you know, Vincent Price is always like that. You know, um, Alan Alda is just like that if you hung out with him, I'm sure. Right. Just be like, like MASH or whatever, you know. But, um, you know, and people maybe assume that a lot of you as an actress that you're going to be the same. And that could be negative or positive. Like I've had um, some roles were, that were very uh, sexy or whatever. And then I've had women um, call me a slut or a whore or whatever based on roles I've taken on. Right. Who think you're doing, you're setting the feminist movement back or something like that. Oh, or that, that me playing a role where I uh, have sex with someone or, or a romantic relationship with them now is like real life. That that was like a real thing that I did that day or something like that. And that that it's like some um, extension of who I am. And then my, you know, my response to that is, you know, I've played like a witch. I've played a Satanist. I've played a cannibal. I've played a zombie. I'm not any of these things in real life. Right. Although I aspire to be all of them one day. <laughs> <laughs> so you've done sex scenes. Oh, yeah, a bit. You a have. Bit. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. is that awkward? Uh, it can be. I remember my first sex scene. Um, I was just talking about it actually last week. It was in James Balsamo's film, I Spill Your Guts. And we were hanging out with Billy actually recently and watching B-rated funny movies, including something called Bikini Drive-In a couple weeks ago, just like hanging out because we're all buddies. And that was my first sex scene. And I Spill Your Guts was like maybe like my third film or second film that I had ever done. Uh-huh. And but first sex scene. In my first sex scene, and yeah. also my first death scene was in that movie, too. Uh-huh. So it was pretty funny. A lot of firsts, because it was only my first couple films. And it's one of the roles I'm the, probably the most well-known for. But I bet you have more experience with sex than you do with death. In my real life? Yeah. Unfortunately, I probably have a bit of experience with both. Oh, okay. Yeah, I would say, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about that. Yeah. But I'm <laughs> curious, the sex scene, I mean, for guys, you often hear that guys get aroused. And when a guy gets aroused, they can't really hide it because it comes becomes obvious. Well, we were actually discussing um, that recently uh, with James Balsamo, and he was saying he had shot so much footage that day, like maybe like three hours of footage of us for the sex scene, and then he cut it down to what was pretty vanilla. Uh-huh. And he said, well, the real reason was is that uh, it was very hard to edit out my actor's uh, endowments. Uh-huh. Yeah, he got he got... He got erect. He got aroused. Yeah, and it was his first time ever shooting a sex scene, too. Mm-hmm. And I don't think he really knew what to expect. Did you know it at the time that he was erect? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I could see it. <laughs> we were naked, yeah. Oh, you were totally naked. Yeah, we did t- We did it totally naked. It was very real and in the moment. Did you, but you didn't really have sex? We did not really have sex. No, no, no. We definitely did not. Okay. Um, and it was the first time I had ever met him was that day. So it was kind of funny. And he's a very attractive, like, he was 25 at the time guy, you know, built tattoos and stuff like that, you know, mm-hmm. that I would, I would imagine would be con- considered attractive to most females. I know I posted a couple pictures of him on Facebook and people messaged me privately and they're like, is that your girlfriend? Uh, is that your boyfriend? He looks great. Yeah. You know, so it was not a, a, a bad person to have your first sex mm-hmm. scene with at all. And he's also a very nice guy. I remember he made me uh, pasta with sausage and meatballs afterwards. Which is which is pretty good. <laughs> Classy. <laughs> yeah, he was supposed to be like my boyfriend, and we actually had a pretty romantic sex scene. Uh-huh. You know, like a loving kind of one. Right. You know, and that's what we were kind of working on. You know, so... Um, was yeah. that difficult? 
it wasn't too bad because, uh, you know, Billy is a pretty nice guy. And, um, you know, we connected pretty well as friends. Mm -hmm. And I've seen him around a lot since then. And, you know, he is really like, you know, a pretty good guy that puts out good energy. So it was easy to do, I think. Well, you, you weren't freaked out by his erection? Um, I have been around erections before. (laughs) (laughs) Was it something that you guys joked about and discussed, or you both ignored it, or everyone on set ignored it? We joked about it, especially when when we were shooting the sex scene, Billy's grandmother called, and he's like naked, and he's in the middle of a sex scene, he's like, hi, grandma, how are you? And he's like, like, yeah, I'll be over later, you know, sure, you, you can make dinner. It was like on a Sunday, so he was like Italian. He's like, I'm going to go over for dinner later. He's like, okay, grandma. Yeah, I'm just working with some friends right now. And then like, um, and then James Balsamo kid around. He's like, we should put that in the extras because it's so hilarious that your grandma calls and your whole mood of you as an actor completely changes through the phone with your grandma. But you're naked and you're in the middle of like a sex scene in a movie. He's totally naked just standing there with an erection talking to his grandma. Kind of. But I'm sure, you know, yeah, yeah. No, that's horror. Well, it was like a very real and kind of primal scene, and, and James wasn't sure how much of it he was going to end up using in the end, so he wanted us to be, like, naked. And in the end, he made it pretty tame and pretty romantic and pretty vanilla, and I think pretty sweet, and I'm pretty happy with it. Mm-hmm. And I think Billy and I did a, a really strong job at it, and, um, you know, although it was the first time I had met him, I think I feel like a lot of love and affection between us in the scenes. Did you feel, did you start to feel any real chemistry or real attraction? I would say so. I think even James Balsamo was like, wow, he's like, if you didn't have a boyfriend, Genoveva, you know, uh-huh. I think something would have happened. <laughs> yeah. So you, you had a boyfriend at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who I called as soon as we were done with it. And I told James, I'm like, if he has, if anything really happened, he's like, you got to tell him what really did happen, you know. Uh-huh. And he was probably a little perturbed and a little jealous afterwards because the guy was, uh, you know, rather attractive and whatever. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my boyfriend at the time was rather attractive as well, you know. So it shouldn't be a real cause of any big jealousy. And he knew, I, he knew you were filming that sex scene. He knew I was. He knew I was going there and he knew I was, I was going to call him right afterwards. And he was like, you know what, you're a professional actress and this is what professional actresses do. Right. This is part of your job. And, um, you know, and that's what you got to do. And, you know, and he was an actor and he had acted in some things as well. And then we have to accept certain things in your job that you have to do. But, you know, and I was never alone with Billy. You know, we had the guy holding the boom and we have James Balsama shooting with his camera. It's not like it was really that intimate. You know, you have a bunch of people hanging out together. Right. We're shooting a sex scene, but we're not like alone together. Shooting. But you did feel some real emotions and stuff come up. Well, right? definitely. I think arousal was something that was felt on set. Yeah. So I think it is a passionate scene because there was a lot of passion between Billy and I in those scenes. Right. And you're spending time together offset and... You know, it's ripe for lovers. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was, like, some real moments. And I've hung out with him as a friend afterwards at conventions and things like that where we've been promoting films. And he's, like, a nice person and everything. And James Balsamo is a really nice person. And we have all become friends and everything like that. But a lot of times, if you're, no, if you're in a sex scene with someone and you have any attraction to that person, being naked with them, pretending to have sex, will certainly bring those feelings to the surface. Just ask Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie about yeah, that, you know? exactly. That can happen. And I can understand how, you know, when you have a significant other in your life, they would potentially be jealous about that. I, I hear often, it is tough. I imagine it's very tough. Um, I also hear stories of the significant other wanting to be on set when they're filming the sex scene. 
Um, I had given my boyfriend at the time the option of uh, coming out that day, although I didn't want him in the room while we were shooting because I think it would um, inhibited my performance mm-hmm. too much. But he could have been in like the other room drinking coffee or whatever, and then I would have come out, you know, during our breaks and stuff and hung out with him. Right. But I don't think I could have had him in the moment while I was doing it because it would have been very hard for me to give a real performance and mm-hmm. be really in the moment with him there. What That's- if your scene partner's grandmother was in the room at the time? <laughs> Oh, that would be a little awkward, too. Yeah, yeah I haven't had that quite happen. Yeah. But um, I did have one boyfriend I did a, a sex scene with in a, in a movie as well, too. And that was a little easier. It was a real boyfriend. He was a real boyfriend. Oh, you, you were in the scene with. Okay. Yeah, when I did Bible Belt Slasher Part 2, um, I was dating the director and the star of the film. And we had a, a sex scene in that. And did that, you just really have sex just to make it easier? Exactly. You did? Yeah, we did. Yeah. yeah we just shot ourselves having you know, sex, you know, and then we just made sure we edited out anything that would not be appropriate for, like, an R-rated film. Was yeah. there other crew in the room at the time? No, no, okay. no. We shot it, like, on a tripod. Okay. You know, so, you know, so and... you still were able to have kind of a private moment. Yeah, so it was pretty there, private right? and Very, things wow. like that. Yeah, and a few people have seen it and said it was one of my best sex scenes, but, you know, I am actually having sex in that scene so and he was your real boyfriend and he was my real boyfriend so i don't really think there's anything wrong with that i think that you could do that um and you know and that makes sense i don't think there's anything cheap or whatever about doing that because it's just what i was doing normally and we decided to have like this very real moment that we put into the film so yeah it blurs the line of what acting is like Mm -hmm. were you acting in that scene well, we were in costume and I was wearing a wig and we were pretending that we're in a certain scenario. Yeah. But, uh, you know, and but the, us having sex, you know, it was similar to when we normally did have sex. You know, it wasn't too different than that. I wonder if guys, I mean, I'd be so nervous of doing a sex scene and like getting overly excited. You know, did you ever have a guy just lose it and ejaculate in a sex scene? Uh, no, no, I haven't done too many that have been really like super duper explicit like that, but no, no, I don't, I think people have mostly kept their cool because I've worked with mostly professional actors who, and I think part of the thing of being an actor is you have a lot of uh, self-control. Because Billy just told me that it, it wasn't his grandma. It was just a fake call he took just to (laughs) wind down. (laughs) Well, I think it's, you know, we talk about preparing for a scene in that case, you know, you have to prepare a certain way if you want to take some some pressure off what do you think matt's saying yeah. here oh <laughs> yeah i told billy about that actually yeah. when we were shooting i was uh, like billy i hope you prepared because yeah. i know i did before i came here did and you he really was like yeah yeah and he was like no i did he's like i didn't realize it was gonna be this involved and i'm like i think you have to go prepare right you know so he prepared oh, for a little wow. while and then you know we resume because it's very natural for that to happen sure you know and um you know same thing when you do uh, like any kind of photographic modeling with someone as well you know that might be a little erotic or a uh, nude or whatever I, I saw that tip on uh inside the actor studio oh yeah. really <laughs> oh did you yeah yeah well you know it is kind of like a thing that's like a big challenge of these um doing these sex scenes and stuff um and romantic scenes with somebody you know i've never had the uh situation where i actually hated the person i had to do it with and i'm sure that's happened to a lot of actors where yeah. you're cast with someone that you completely hate like i know and even dirty dancing supposedly patrick swayze and jennifer gray couldn't stand each other mm. but they're such good actors they seem so in love in that movie right so it's a testimony to how wonderful they're because they really don't, hated each other in real life um maybe they, ha- they had good chemistry and sometimes the chemistry was hatred Oh, yeah, I guess they played they that into love, it, yeah. tense emotions, yeah. Yeah. Because I had even read somewhere that, like, um, they asked Jennifer Grey's permission, pretty much, to cast Patrick Swayze in that role. Um, that w- she, was she going to be able to handle it, knowing that how much she hated him and at that time? 
you know and they were like she was like fine it's good for the movie it makes sense we'll do it yeah because you know? i'm not so so sure how you can fake chemistry it's tough but you know you have to do it i guess you have to think about someone that maybe you loved in the past and maybe just kind of visualize that the person you're with in that scene is that person mm-hmm. you know it's it's interesting, Gary, that you had no question about like faking violence or hatred. You're like, oh, if you're yeah, if you're in a horror movie, that's easy to do that. But oh, love acting, love, yeah, can't do it. Yeah, I feel like I can't remember a movie now, but I feel like I've seen like two people that are supposed to be in love, and I'm like, these two have no chemistry whatsoever. It's just a terrible casting. Well, sometimes that happens, and then some people are just great actors. Like I know, like an officer and gentleman, Richard Gere and his um, co-star hate each other too, mm-hmm. but you don't see that in the film, right? And that's a testimony to how great of actors they are, too. I guess you just have to take that time you've been in love and try to think of the person that you're with as being that person. Have you ever been on set where you just hated the other actor? I can't really think of that time I've ever hated any of the other actors. I'm not a very hateful person. Uh I tend to be a more loving, like easygoing kind of person. They never pissed you off so much where you're like, I can't wait for the scene. I get to slash them with my chainsaw. No, no, but I do enjoy violence, um, you know, and, 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 uh, uh, you know, having violent roles. Like, I had a lot of fun on Hunters with uh, Jason Vale, who's a great actor. Uh, He just did Valley of the Sasquatch recently, and he's been on, I think, um, Guiding Light and um, the film Tammy and everything. And I have these great scenes where I'm, like, throwing him around and stabbing him and stuff like that. And I had a lot of fun doing that, you know. He's a very attractive man from Atlanta, you know, um, you know, but it was nice to be in this dominant position throwing around a, a very attractive was man. Was it cathartic for you? <laughs> cathartic, yeah? Yeah, and it was almost kind of erotic. Yeah. You know, it was sexy. It was Have fun. you experimented with that in your personal life? What? A little, pe- yeah, a little domination kind of stuff. Um, At times, because I would say a lot of the men um, that are the most attractive to me uh, probably do like to take a little bit of more of a submissive role. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, I usually do... You know, we so often do attract our opposites, so I've had a lot of, you know, I've had some very dominant, aggressive men in my life, certainly, mm-hmm. and I've also had the opposite, which is more like a submissive, uh, sensitive, intellectual kind of guy, right? you know, as well. And I can be attracted to either one, it just depends on the person, I guess. Yeah. So, to bridge this gap of like, do you find a similarity in the roles you like to play with your personal sexual life? Not necessarily, no, no, because it's I. I like to take roles that are that, that allow me to step kind of outside of myself, and they're very different. You know, like playing like a mother in a dark place inside, and I have like this like six year old son being an apocalypse kiss and giving birth. There's nothing of me in those roles. There's mm-hmm. nothing of me in a lot of these roles that I play. Like me as a sexy satanist, you know, I don't worship Satan or anything like that. And you prefer that because it takes you out of your regular life. Yeah, and it is an escape. It is yeah. this, like, fantasy. And that's what's fun about it. And, you know, and being in, like, hunters and running around stabbing somebody to death or killing people and with a chainsaw makes me step out of my own reality and kind of embrace this other world. It's the closest thing. You know, being an actor is the closest thing we get to being, like, a superhero or something. You get to live this extraordinary life where you get to do these crazy things and there's no punishment for, mm-hmm. for it. There's just reward, you know? <laughs> it's wonderful. It's fun. Uh, on the flip side of things, have you ever been dating a guy and he was uncomfortable with this world that you're in, exposing yourself in all emotional and physical ways that it, it's just he would be too jealous or uncomfortable with that? It, that is a challenge, I think, as a horror queen is finding who you would date 
because um, I get a large amount of um, attention in my life and not everybody is super happy about that. There could be a lot of jealousy about that. And that's been a problem, jealousy in some of my relationships uh, with the opposite sex. It takes a really secure guy. Yeah, and there aren't too many secure guys out there, unfortunately, mm -hmm. um, that at least that I've found. So that can be really difficult. Like I, you know, I dated um, some actors and, you know, maybe I was doing better than them at the time or I was getting cast in more roles or I was getting more attention and more interviews. And that was very upsetting. I know I had got on a couple of dates with a director at one point and he ran into me at Monster Mania and um, everybody's getting my uh, autograph and, you know, interviewing me and he's not really getting noticed and it's tough because to be in a relationship with someone where you both feel like you're battling for the spotlight. That's a tough thing about two people dating each other that are in the same field. It is a challenge. Yeah. You compare. Which goes back to what you're saying about like, you know, opposites attracting versus people who are, who are alike. And, and I've always thought about that with, with my own personal life of like, you know, it makes sense for me in a certain way to date actors and, and artists in that world. Mm. But at the same time, it's nice to have your private life not that world and have something different going on well it's a double-edged sword because when i hang out with guys that are just completely outside of this world i have a hard time relating to them yeah because it's such a huge part of my life and such a passion and such a driving force something it's like an obsession my acting right you know it's no coincidence that i have all these imdb credits in such a short period of time because i put so much of myself into it sometimes i feel like i'm ahab and I'm pursuing like this white whale you know <laughs> and that's my acting career but um, so somebody has to be able to understand that. But at the same time, we can't we have to be happy for each other. And there can't be like that jealousy and that envy. We have to be supportive of each other and help mm -hmm. pushing each other along in our lives. And maybe if you're both actors, that's just like too much of a challenge. You know, maybe a director or a makeup artist or a musician or a comedian or whatever would be a better match a creative person, or a painter doing something different yeah. yeah a little bit different so you're not in competition exactly with each other right you know um you're doing things that are different enough that you're not going to be comparing them all the time i think you can you can stretch it out to be broader like you have a passion and it's a creative pursuit that you're pursuing so to date any other person with a creative pursuit that they're pursuing would put you on the same page but if you were dating someone that just was like, okay, working a, a bank teller job, and that's all they want to do is go to their job and come home and maybe take a couple of vacations, might be tough. Right. Well, it's true. I look back at my life and the people I've had in it, and most of them have been creative people. I like to be with a man that has um, a passion, a driving force, something that's really big in their life that they're pursuing that maybe eats at them and that keeps them awake nights and that really, you know, is a thing for them, whether it's music or filmmaking or uh, poetry or painting. Right. You know, just like this driving force and this passion. Now, is, is the catch with that is that their career or their art will always be ahead of their relationship? You know, I, I've had that. And I was like with a musician for years and, and his uh, music was probably more important to him than I was. But right. you know what? I was secure in that. Because... I'm getting from you that your acting is more important than any relationship you're in. Well, you know, I've thought about that since, exactly right. I've thought about that since I started with this acting, you know, years ago. I thought to myself, if I have to make the decision between a relationship or my acting, I'm going to have to probably choose my acting. Yeah. And I'd have to be with a man that would choose his creative pursuits even over me. Right. And then I think that would be the only way I could have a successful relationship. Yeah, D does it baffle you when you see someone that maybe you re even respect them and they're an artist of some sort and they're just with like some regular person that doesn't have a 
passionate pursuit? Um, I don't understand necessarily how that happens, but maybe some people see that as like an escape. Like they maybe they want to escape from their creative life and have someone that just like talks about like going to the supermarket and whatever. And they're like, wow, that's like such an escape from my reality. How invigorating this is to finally talk to somebody about normal things. Yeah, just <laughs> the different ingredients of cereals. And you're like, oh, this is so nice. This has nothing to do with directing or movies. They're just talking about what cereals on sale. Yeah, yeah, and that and that could be fun too. And I wouldn't mind being with someone that was maybe a painter, and we were just talking about painting stuff because I paint from time to time too. But I'm not like overly passionate about it. But I wouldn't mind just be like with somebody where we're talking about painting and going to like museums all the time, you know. And I can delve right. into that world, you know. And that would be a break from my own experience, you know. I don't always like to be sitting around um, in my normal life, you know, talking about myself and my film roles and everything else. When I'm done with that, I want to move on to other things. Yeah, like. Sometimes I feel like I just want stuff that's completely out of my wheelhouse, like something totally that I don't think about. You ever feel like that? You're just like, I just want someone that's going to talk to me about stuff that is so different from my world. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. And I would have to, you know, for me, it would have to be a very, you know, intelligent person with uh, diverse interests because I would like to have somebody that you could maybe discuss art or philosophy or, or different kinds of cinema, not necessarily horror movies, but maybe we could talk about like Italian cinema right. or the neorealism um, movement in italy or something like that you know there's a lot you know things along those lines because there's so many wonderful creative things to talk about that are outside of the realm of even my own experience but i want to you know discuss and learn more about yeah know? i always say that a major percentage of every relationship is spent in conversation you know so you really got to be able to talk to the person and for me, what's really big is shared interests and activities. Mm -hmm. You know, like somebody that I could go to like a museum with, maybe go to a play with, um, you know, go to a park with and go like, just like kind of explore and embrace the world. Like I don't limit my interests. My interests, you know, doing that would limit your life. Right. I like to embrace a, like a multitude of things, but I'm very interested in arts and culture. Well, I think that having diverse interests is really helpful for your art. Do you find that... If you go to a museum, there's something about that experience that you bring to the screen? Oh, definitely. Everything in your life um, is brought to the screen, especially as an actor. Whatever pain you feel, uh, whatever love you felt, whatever place you've gone. I like to travel a lot in my spare time, too. Mm -hmm. Helps to broaden your range, I think, as an actor. Yeah, see, yeah. Uh, I've, I lived in Los Angeles for a few years, and you know, living there, you meet a lot of actors. And I've noticed two kinds of actors, ones that are really emotional, Mm. and uh, ones that are just empty vessels. Like, mm. they're just like this good-looking, empty person of a shell. Shell of a person. And which one's a better actor? I don't know. It's really weird. Sometimes the... I th Ultimately, I do think the person that has more emotional depth is probably better. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. Because I've known some people that are actors, or call themselves actors, and they don't have a lot of emotions. And I don't think they have them, and maybe they're repressed. And my emotions are never repressed. My emotions are always so close to the surface, yeah. maybe being Italian. And I can access them um, very easily, whether it's love, sorrow, or anger. Because at any moment, I can explode in any of these emotions. Do you think people <laughs> have different depths of emotions? Or do you think we all have the same depth of emotion, but just some people are more blocked than others? Yeah, some people are very blocked. And I don't think you could be blocked as an actor. I think you have to be able to access your emotions. But at the same time, you have to be able to control your emotions. Yeah, you don't want to be a puddled mess. Yeah, and I can have full control of my emotions. Like, you know, and me as an actor carries over into my life. Like, one of the examples I give is my friend Salvatore, 
mm-hmm. um, you know, had stage four cancer a few years ago. And he had told me that if I was going to come and visit him, I would have to be happy. No tears, only smiles, even though he knew he had a limited amount of time, but right. he wanted his final moments to be happy moments. So when I went over to visit him those final times, happy, smiling, you know, Sal's going to get over this. He's going to get, you know, it'll be fine in a couple months. Right. Everything is going to be wonderful. You so know, your acting skills came into play. Oh yeah. No <laughs> tears. Cause I can control my tears. I can control my sadness. And I'm very well aware of my mannerisms, my facial expressions, my eye expressions. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code program for a four week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com code program. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe and Summit 4xe models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And what I'm conveying emotionally to another person. So if you're if you're having to pull from a place of deep sadness, you're pulling that sadness from a place you've experienced in your real life. Yeah, yeah. I've definitely, you know, people see me and I seem like a very happy, bright person. And that's, I think, partly because I have experienced so much uh, sadness and um, upsetting things in my life. And I realize that you really have to find so much happiness in the moment because we never know... Um, where life will take us and when things are going to end. Life mm-hmm. is so precious, so you have to find happiness in each and every moment, and I think life has taught me that. That's a really good lesson. It's it's interesting, also, what you said earlier about you know seeing your friend and, and being happy because you know how to do it, and it's something that I had thought about recently, that like you know sometimes you could be having a crappy day and you're going to see a friend, not even in a severe situation like that, but you always want to, you see someone, family, friend, you want to bring your best. Yes. But you can be ha- having a crappy day. And I feel like in my past, when I was younger, I would bring whatever I was feeling. Mm. But then I started realizing like, hey, if I, if I can change it when I'm acting, if I can pretend I'm being happy for the camera, I certainly can do that for my friends and family. And uh, it's been really helpful in my life. And it's not, it's, not, it about, it's not about being fake. Uh-huh. It's just about turning off, you know, like some, so 99% of the time when you're having a crappy day, it's not real. It's just you're having a crappy day. Right. It's your and, perception. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you can just be like, as you're entering, you know, if I if I had a crappy day on my way over to here today, you know, I can bring that into your home, or I can just be like, you know what, I'm shutting it off, I'm taking a deep breath, and I'm starting my day over. And that's yeah. something I've gotten from acting, and it's not it's not about being fake. It's just about sort of rearranging your emotions. Controlling if your, you yeah. can't change the situation, change your perception. Right. Yeah, then that's really important. To know. Yeah, it's like a, yeah. kind of like a Buddhist principle. And but I'm, you also don't want to go too far with it where you're always denying, because it's okay to feel things. I feel like people are more than ever afraid to feel things. Well, and that's why people are on like Prozac and all these antidepressants. Exactly. Sometimes anxiety and depression are a natural response to something that's happening in your life. Mm-hmm. And you're, you need to process that emotionally. And if you don't do it now, you're going to be doing it later when you're off this drug. Yeah, you know? or it's going to manifest itself in some sort of ulcer or cancer. 
You know, it's right. important to feel your feelings. I think it's important to feel your feelings, but also to have it in perspective. Like going back to my scenario, it's like nine out of 10 times, if I'm not feeling good, it's because of the trains, because of the MTA. And mm-hmm. sure, I'm allowed to, like, as soon as something happens, just miss a train or a train being delayed, I'm allowed to be upset, but I shouldn't be upset for hours about it. But would you have you to let a- it go. Yeah. You have to let it go. But would you be upset about the trains if everything in your life was going amazing? Like maybe the trains being a pain in the ass is just a little trigger to let out the sadness that you feel mm. for the disappointments in your life. I, I think there's something to that. But yeah. Then, yeah. Then, then if that's the case, I need to really go deeper. That's realize something. Something's ha- yeah. So it, it can be an indication mm-hmm. um, of a bigger issue. Yeah. Yes. A- absolutely. No. That that that's a good point. Yeah. Yeah. Because I know in times when I'm like floating on air or something yeah. amazing happened, I don't care. I'll sit in a subway delayed for forty five minutes. Sure. Smiling at people. Yeah. I'm just yeah. happy. No. I, I I agree with you. Yep. But it's it it is it is those occasions when sometimes when I am thinking about it and saying I need to shut this off. I need to stop being angry about a train I missed by a minute an hour ago. Yeah. Then I'm like, all right, something is going on. So it, I think it is an indication, and it is all about that awareness. For me, acting has brought a greater awareness to my own emotions and how I share them with others. And I would think Absolutely. that, as, and I would think that as an actor, you would welcome these depths of emotions. As it's okay to go there. This is good. It's good for your professional life. I think it's for me. It's been about using them and utilizing and making the most of the emotions instead of just allowing myself to just swim laps in my own bullshit. Yeah. yeah, like when I was uh, m- a much more active musician, I would welcome any depression or su- any th- any sort of up or down. I'd be like, "Yes, good. I'm really depressed. This is going to lead to a writing a song," you know. And it's uh, it can be used as a tool, and it's okay to go there sometimes. Well, so many artists and musicians, uh, when they were going through their blackest period, um, was the best period for them creatively. Yeah, exactly. You know, because sometimes uh, you know depression. Um, if explored, can really bring us to a beautiful place. Right. Know? And luckily for me that I was willing to go there, willing to let myself go there. Yeah. I could have been like, oh my God, these feelings, I'm feeling uncomfortable. I got to medicate myself. Yes, because nowadays I really feel like our culture is so afraid to feel. We're so afraid of love, anxiety, depression. We just want to be numb. You, you, I mean, you see it with people in the day-to-day moment. They might be alone for a second in a room. And instead of just being like feeling that awkwardness, they'll take out their phone mm-hmm. and just be on their phone like, oh, now I feel secure. It's like, oh, I was going to feel something, but nope, out comes the phone. I was going to feel something or tell someone about my feelings. Right. Yeah. Or I was going to have the silence and mm-hmm. I was going to have to be alone with my thoughts, mm-hmm. alone with my mind, alone with myself. God, mm-hmm. I can't have that. Imagine that. <laughs> How terrible. <Yeah. laughs> but these, these ranges of emotions, I would imagine that you bring to, the, to, your, to your roles mm. fairly well oh yeah definitely and i always like in my life i've always noticed i have like a great control over my emotions like whenever i've been in like a situation that's been like a maybe a very negative one or a very challenging one you know you're emotional but i also have this emotional intelligence where i usually mediate the situation logically as well Mm -hmm. and that's something that comes to play with my acting is that you know i have control over my emotions Um, i am very emotional but at the same time i have that logic to kind of balance me yeah, and you mentioned this off mics. Um, your mom recently passed away. Yes, and so that was very emotional. It has been one of the most emotional things you felt. Well, yeah, I would say so. I would say like two of the most emotional um, and upsetting periods in my life were um, when I was very young. I um, I did find my father. 
uh, passed away. You found his body? Yeah, he had been gone for maybe an hour. And then tragically on Easter Sunday, I, I found my mother. You found her body as well? Yeah. So you saw each of your parents? Yes. Uh, the, with my father, I was with my siblings and my mother. Mm-hmm. Um, he had passed in his sleep. Um, my mother, I was by myself. And um, it was actually kind of an interesting thing, because as an addition to being an actress, I'm, I'm kind of like this trained psychic as well. And uh, the last time I saw my mother... Um, Did you know I was going to ask this question? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it was a kind of an interesting thing, because it's kind of a weird story, but... The last time I saw my mother, she was saying things, and we, I was there for maybe four hours, but for 10 minutes, she discussed out of those four hours, she said, if anything should happen to me, I want you to know that I'm ready to go. Mm-hmm. I'm ready for anything that God has to offer me. Right. You know, I, I have no fear, you know, and she's like, I'm missing your father, I'm missing your Aunt Genevieve that you're named for. I've been thinking about them a lot lately, and they're gone, you know, and she's like, I want to be cremated, and I don't want everybody to be too upset or make too much of a big deal about it. She was it. telling you this the night you found her? No, like like a week before. Okay. Yeah. So she was ready. Perhaps. But then we also talked about who we were going to vote for in the upcoming election and a whole bunch of things like that. Because she cares about you. Yeah, yeah. So we were discussing a whole bunch of different um, myriad of things. And we were talking about, you know, how she felt about Ronald Reagan in the 80s and blah, blah, blah. And, and all these things. So her mind was definitely with it. But she just kind of threw that in there. Mm-hmm. And she had thrown things like that in conversation before. But um, people on my mom's side of the family tend to have or have had premonitions and things, including my mom's father who dreamt his death the day before he died. Right. Don't you think that's so much a part of it? Like if a person's like, no, I don't want to die. I want to keep living. I'm going to keep fighting that that will keep them alive. And when someone's like, you know what? I think I've had enough. I'm ready to go. Well, psychologically, that's part of it. And then also, I guess sometimes you feel the flow and ebb of the universe. It's almost like a cat um, with its paws on the ground. They can feel the earthquake coming. You know, sometimes I think we sense what's coming, what's eminent. Mm. And I know that's happened to me. I know when my great uncle passed away, I was with my uh, boyfriend, Rusty, at the time. And I said, wow, it's like I felt something. Someone close to me is gone now. Mm-hmm. And then I found it the next day my great uncle had passed away, you know. Yeah. And it's almost like a cat just sensing that earthquake. It's the universe, these vibrations that I think are given off, you know. And people in my... um you know, mother's family have had these premonitions and stuff that have uh, come true. My uncle, my grandmother, my grandfather, and I think my mother maybe had a sense of things. And then I had gone home and I told myself, oh, you know, the people in my family, the, especially the women, tend to live such a long time. I, You know, mom's just being paranoid or whatever. And then um, days went by and then I started, I was at work one day and I almost fainted. And I, you know, just kind of suddenly and I was just like, wow. And then um, I started getting very feverish for a couple days and thinking a lot about my father who had passed on Mm -hmm. um and he's been gone for a while and i was just like a lot of thoughts about that and then i felt better for you know the easter weekend and i went to see my family and then i stopped by to see my mother and there was a sense of dread Mm -hmm. and when i walked into the house um i knew what i was going to find you knew it as you were walking in the house yeah that you're gonna find it was dark and it shouldn't have been dark Uh uh-huh and then i was like you know, and I almost didn't come that day. I was almost going to call her and, be, and leave a message and tell her that I'll come by on Monday or whatever. But I did come, and you know, that's what I, you know, I found. Unfortunately, um, I think she did go in the way she would have wanted um, at home um, in her bed quickly. No, not in her bed, but on the floor. Um, you know, it was a sudden heart attack. Um, you know, she was probably gone in a matter of moments, um, and um, you know. 
she didn't suffer. She didn't have any illness before then, you know, or anything like that. So even our doctor, Dr. Vitali, you know, he was very good. He was probably the best. He said the best things because he was like, you know, he's like, he's a doctor. He's seen so many people die. And he said so many people would trade places with your mother in a heartbeat that instead of having this long drawn out illness in a hospital to die in a couple moments and you're at home. home, surrounded by what's familiar and with the least amount of suffering and not to even really see it coming would really be preferably, he said to, you know, 99.9% of the population, mm-hmm. you know, and he said it's even unusual to even go that way. So it was peaceful. And my father was peaceful too. He wouldn't his sleep. Yeah. Do you remember so, your last words with your mom? I remember the last moment, and I think I paid very close attention to it at that time, even though I didn't know on a conscious level it would be the last time. But I remember the last time I saw her was when I was getting to the car and I was leaving, and she was waving from the porch, and she said, thank you so much for stopping by, take care, and she was waving. And I was in my car, and I took a pause, and I took a moment to look at her waving, and appreciating that I had stopped by that day. I had brought her cannolis and things like that. I used to like to bring her uh, cookies and pastries because she had a sweet tooth. And then I drove away, you know. And and, and that day, actually, I, I came kind of unannounced. I usually told my mother when I was going to be coming. But that mm-hmm. day, I happened to be driving by this bakery and decided to get her uh, miniature chocolate cannolis at some uh, bakery that had especially good cannolis and drop them off, not no, even knowing if she would be home or not. Right, And then she happened to be, and we spent like four hours together, and thank God we didn't get into any arguments or have any uh, negativity that day. Yeah. Because it's so easy to have those kinds of relationships with our parents or our brothers and sisters, yeah. you, know? Um, you know. We love them so much, but it's so easy to argue over trivial things. But luckily, that was a good visit, and everything was very positive. You, you feel like you remember the very last glance? Is it like freeze-framed? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Mm-hmm. You always uh, remember those sorts of things, you know, and it was a very uh, extreme, uh, you know, situation to be in. It was a very sudden situation to be in, um, you know, on a full conscious level, you know, I didn't know what I was going to find that day, but I guess maybe on a subconscious level, probably, I had a sense of it. Yeah, a little prepared. Yeah, because even my friend Edward X. Young, who I've starred in over 20 films with and is a really good friend of mine, said he had seen me the day before, and he said, you didn't seem right at all. Yeah. He said, you didn't seem like you felt well. You didn't seem like the normal Genoveva, you Did know? You, had your mom passed the day before? Um, we don't really know for a fact. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you know, her house was warm. There were a lot of different variables at play. It's very difficult for a coroner to tell you the exact time and day that mm-hmm. a person passed away. But it probably had been a little bit of time. Um, my uncle, um, you know, was like, well, as luck would have it, she was found on, um, you know, Easter Sunday. And it is the Catholic belief that that is the most holy day of the year. Right. Um, and, you know, and Holy Week being the most holy week of the year. Um, and she died. Um, oh, I found her the same day as um, Mother Angelica, who founded EWTN, um, the Catholic Network, passed mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so that's kind of a weird coincidence. Um, and she was considered, I guess, a very holy person as well. So, you know, my uncle's like, we have to think of it that way. Yeah. You know, that, it, you know, it was a very holy day to have gone. It's the day, you know, that Jesus returned and that we celebrate Easter. Not that everybody has to believe in Jesus or be Christian, but, you know, well, but then this, you know, that's what Easter celebrates. Not, not to trivialize mm-hmm. or minimize this experience, but do you think this, this is a life-changing experience you just had? Yeah. I mean, it was very recent, Easter weekend. Yeah. Do you feel like because of this experience, you'll be a better actress than you've ever been? 
probably it'll inspire me in some ways acting. Um, it's going to change my life a lot because I think to go through your life now without parents and being a pretty young person that I am mm-hmm. is an interesting experience. You know, when I think about my childhood and my childhood memories, there's like so, there's like nobody that was there in all these moments. You know, I have my siblings, but you know, these moments I had with my parents, there's no one that recollects them anymore other than me. I've heard people say yeah. um, that you don't become an adult until you have a child or until you lose both your parents well i think i became an adult rather early in the sense that i lost um my father when i was rather young and i think that's part of the reason why i am such like a dominant assertive woman is that i had to take on a lot of roles of my father very early on in my life Uh you know being financially responsible uh, being self-sufficient you know i had to become my father in a sense right because i did not have a father you had to be a man of the house kind of thing well, I have two brothers, but I had to be really in charge of my own life and really self-sufficient because there was no one else to really help me. Mm-hmm. And if anything, my mother kind of required my help because it was very difficult for her um, to lose my father. You know? So y- your father never had a chance to see any of your films, the things that he helped start to stir in you and inspire? No, no, he, go, he went yeah. way before that. You know, mm-hmm. He didn't get to see a lot of things in my life um, happen. You know, he, um, you know, didn't get to see one of his children married, didn't get to see us graduate from college. Mm-hmm. He left us too soon, mm-hmm. you know. So a lot of things he missed out on in that regard and that we missed out on by having him in our life. Sure. Mm-hmm. My mother, thankfully, was around for more of those things, of course. But um, Did she see many of your films? Um, A little bit, a little bit, you know. And she what was did she surprised think of by- the sex scene? Oh, well, I didn't show her that one. You know, we, we skipped that, you know. yeah. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awkward? Yeah, that's a little too racy for mom. I don't to, know if she to, would like to, that. Yeah. Steer things to a, a little different emotion. Uh, I understand you, you recently created your own horror film, a comedic horror film. Yes, yes, yes. T- talk about that. We shot that um, in the summer. And, and it is called? Attack of the Killer Chickens. I uh, wrote that. Mm-hmm. I directed that and I star in that. Um with a great cast of people. Edward X. Young mm-hmm. is in that with me. We're in 20 films together. A great friend of mine, a great collaborator. Uh, Nick Petito was my cinematographer. He did sound. He did lighting. He was our gaffer. He was everything. He did a fantastic job. He edited it. Amazing job Nick Petito did. Um, Rocco George created our chicken puppets, which was amazing. He also did a lot of our special effects makeup. He played three chickens, and he also played a human character named Vinny. Uh, Kate, I don't know who any of these people are. <laughs> oh, I know, but I'm going to plug them. KJ Hopkins is a friend of mine that's been on a whole bunch of movies, and he kind of uh, it was our location manager and kind of helped around with everything, including puppeteering. Yeah. Um, who catered? Pamela Martin <laughs> was uh, my co-star and my gay lover in it. Uh-huh. So every and she also produced. Um, I did some of the catering. You know, um, I you know I I, I wrote the script. I um, so an so, Italian caterer. That's good. Yeah, I produced did, it. Yeah, you can't go wrong with pizza. You know, did, did any of this come from being in so many films and saying, "Hey, I wanted I want to be the one in control of this. I want to be the creator of this. I I have seen things go wrong or not done in the way that I would do it." Oh, exactly right. Well, I've done so many movies in a short period of time that I think I know my way around a set. So, um, and people were saying to me, people had been saying for a while, when are you going to direct? When are you going to direct? When are you going to direct? And I was like, really? Why is everybody asking me to direct? You know, Um, how weird. And I remember my one friend out in Buffalo who's a director was like, you know, you're going to direct a film. He's like, people are really going to judge you by this. It's got to be good. It's got to be really good. But I was like, no, 
It's going to be bad. It's going to be really mm-hmm. bad. So that's what I went in that direction of bad, really bad, because I was like, why did I become an actor? I said I became an actor because I wanted to be in something like Pink Flamingos, or mm-hmm. I wanted to be in something like Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Right. I wanted to be a cult film actor. I like the bizarre. I like the hilarious. You yeah. know, I like obscure things. You know, I love the cult. So, um, so I created this film, Attack of the Killer Chickens, which I would call a comedy horror film because I wouldn't even say it's a horror comedy. It's really more of a comedy horror. Yeah. You know, it's um. Well, with a title like that, it's uh, got a little comedic bend to it. Oh yeah, it's tended to really um, be hilarious, and um, you know we we take a lot from um, you know Night of the Living Dead, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, Planet of the Apes, Pink Flamingos by John Waters. I love John Waters, mm-hmm. um, and and even I think uh, Howard the Duck mm-hmm. and and a whole bunch of other films um, were my inspiration for this film. So is is it done yet? It it's completed? done. It's a six and a half minute short, and it's gone to. I is think, it out? Like, yeah, it's out. It's gone to like maybe seven film festivals. I think the next one it'll be doing will be in June, and it's the Bronx International Film Festival that it was accepted to. Where just can recently. listeners uh, find it? It's not online because once you put it online, the film festivals will not take it. They want to feel like they're getting something that exclusive. Exactly. Yeah. So maybe eventually we'll put it online. Mm-hmm. Um, I do have DVD copies that I sometimes uh, sell at conventions and things like that as well, and that's been going pretty well. A lot of people see it at a film festival and then want to own and watch it over and over again. Yeah, you know. Well, well you could put it up online as a paid download. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll do something like that at some point. That would be good, like Vimeo or something like that as a paid download, or uh, you know, you could watch it for like a dollar or something like that. Yeah, something like that, or even just as a file that people pay and then they download it. Yeah, that would make sense. That maybe that'll be the future of it when we're done with the film festival mm-hmm. route. Um, it's already the first film festival we did was the Bright Side, um, not the Bright Side. It was the Northeast Horror Film Festival Horror Fest, where we were nominated for best screenplay, mm-hmm. which is pretty cool. Considering it was my first time actually writing a screenplay, yeah. um, although I am like a professional writer, but and I was a English major with a minor in journalism in college, so I yeah. am a public writer. Uh, I have a background in public relations and marketing writing. I've done a lot of journalistic writing. I've done poetry. I've done short stories. You've got you've got a lot of experience, and you've done so much just in the past couple of years. It's pretty amazing. And now with this life experience, I feel like it's just going to get better and better and deeper and deeper, and we're going to see more depth from you than ever. Oh yeah, and I've been very you know I'm going to say like this is a testimony to how I am as an actress. Is that like you know uh, my mother passes away, and then um. Like, like within like the week, I uh, was cast in uh, and got a cameo in Death House, starring mm-hmm. Kane Hodder, D. Wallace. And you're like Death Robert House. Campton. I was just there. Yeah, I'm like oh. I could do that. Yeah, you know, I can embrace whatever negativity life has to offer. Was, I never shield myself from was it. Was there a challenge or a feeling of am, am I disrespecting my mother? You know, doing something death related so soon after. Well, you know, it's horror. Everything's yeah. death-related, and all of life is death-related. Death is a uh, part of life. Right. It's a very organic and natural, you know, state. Yeah, you could take it two ways. You can mourn her death, or you could just celebrate her life. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. And I'm sure she would want us to all go on with ourselves and 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 do things. And she had even said that, you know, when I saw her, that she didn't want people to be too upset if anything should happen to her, right? And kind of move forward, you know. Um, and that's been an important thing. So I did Death House not far after that. And believe it or not, the day of her memorial service, I was called to do 100 Acres of Hell starring Gene Snitsky and directed by Jay Lee, who directed um, Zombie Strippers mm-hmm. um, years ago. Nice. Um, I'm in his most recent film, and they wanted to shoot with me that week. So I said, you know, my mom's memorial service is at 1. We're going to go out for lunch afterwards. I said I could be there at 7. I said, does 7 work? And Jay was like, 7 will work. Wow. wow. Good. So we shot the same day. 
And, um, you know, and everybody was really supportive and I was happy to do it. It got my mind off of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gene Snitsky offered if I ever want to uh, talk on the phone about it. He said he's had some, you know, pretty, uh, you know, difficult points in his life, too, mm-hmm. that he would be able to talk to me about the loss of my mother and have his own life experiences that he could bring to the table. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's available for me and he's a very nice guy. Everybody was really, really helpful and wonderful. And I was happy to do it. And then I went home and then the next day I went out to uh, Delaware to be a guest at Amazicon, which was a sci-fi pop culture convention. See, I'm, what I'm seeing from you right now and looking at your eyes, you're, you're very emotional. And uh, it's nice to see because I'm excited for the future now because I feel like this is like, you only lose your mom once. Yeah. And what you're going to take, you're already very emotional talking about this. I imagine that when you bring it to a, a screen, it's going to be pretty powerful stuff. Oh, yeah, I'm a very emotional person, but then, you know, I didn't start crying exactly either. Well, you have control of it, yeah. And I do have control, yeah, yeah. You know, when we did, uh, when we were at the church and we were doing our eulogies and stuff, like, my brother is so much, has such a hard time controlling his emotions, he completely broke down during his Mm -hmm. eulogy. And I was emotional, and you could probably hear it in my voice and my expressions, but uh, I usually cry in private and not so much in public. Yeah. You know, and that's just kind of how I am because it's like a private thing. It doesn't mean I'm not doing it. I've I've been doing a lot of that lately and that's a natural process and there's nothing wrong with it. But I don't necessarily like to do that in the public forum. Although there's nothing really wrong with it, you know, and I don't, you know, condemn anyone or belittle anyone for doing it. Yeah, you're not a voyeuristic crier? No, no, I guess <laughs> not. You know, I don't, it's not something I, I tend to do, you know, unless unless it's a film. And then I have this experience now to access, I guess, next time I'm in... A film, and I have to uh, go to a dark, sad place. Right. You know, I'll be going to to that day when I found my mother, or to that day where I uh, saw my father, um, and I will be bringing that into my performances. That's where, part of who I am now. Where know? can listeners go to find your performances to see your films? There, are, a lot of my films are distributed. I would say at least eighty percent of them have some kind of dis- distribution. Even like the short films can so be found. Go to your online. IMDb page and look for the individual film. You could do that. Um, you could also do a Google search of me. How do mm-hmm. I spell my name? I spell it G-E-N-O-V-E-V-A, Rossi, R-O-S-S-I. If you don't remember the last name, I think I'm the most famous person in the world with the first name Genoveva. My friend yeah. Nicky Petito uh, Googled it, and he was like, wow, other than an opera, you're like the most famous person with that name. And I think I'm the most uh, well-known person on IMDb with that name. So if you only remember the first name, that's fine. Genoveva, Rossi. And yeah, check me out on IMDb, um, Google my name, see what comes up. Lots and, of things will. And we'll put a link in the show notes. So, Perfect. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks for coming Thank and you. talking to us. Thank you for having me. Yeah. You have a good time? Yeah, it was very interesting. <laughs> you, I can tell you guys have a, a knowledge of psychology. You're very uh, thoughtful. You're very, you know, insightful in, in the things that you come up with. Thank you. Do you feel like it's been beneficial to you? Well, it's been interesting. I know after uh, uh, listening to Jeremiah's interview that it would probably be like a very in-depth, emotional um, kind of interview where you would ask questions that I'm not normally asked. So I was kind of challenged by that. It's a new experience, and I'm an actor, and we're all about new experiences and pushing our boundaries. Good. Well, I'm glad you got your boundaries pushed today. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.